Thanks for tuning in to Mountain View Fellowship's weekly podcast. At MVF, our mandate is pointing people to Jesus by fostering relationships. We know Jesus cared for people and placed a lot of emphasis on relationships. So we do too. We believe that we're created for relationship with God and that He gave each one of us a desire to belong. If you'd like more information about MVF, connect with us at mvfcolorado.com. Now, stay tuned for this week's message. We are kicking off a brand new series today entitled You Asked For It. If you are new with us, especially welcome to you. You're kind of walking in at a funny time because uh, what we've done is over the last six weeks is we've asked everyone that was coming to, to services on Sunday morning to turn in some questions. And it was questions in regards to faith, church, life, relationship, whatever it is, whatever you struggle the most with when it comes to uh, your relationship with God or, or what's going on in your life, uh, we wanted to hear about that. And so what we did is over the last several weeks is we've compiled all of those questions and uh, we brought them into the office and we had a ton of questions all over uh, the spectrum. And so what we've done is we've actually took all those questions, we broke them down into six categories. So it looked like we had uh, six main categories. And so over the next few weeks, you're going to hear about topics like uh, life, uh, church life, relationships, um, home life, things like that. And we decided that this very first Sunday, this first week, we're going to tackle the two easiest subjects. Uh, so this should be pretty simple. Uh, we're we're going to be talking about the Bible and God today, okay? Uh, so that's a joke. Anyway, uh, we... We thought, how in the world are we going to tackle these two subjects on, on a day like this? So here's what we've done. Uh, we've actually broken this into three different categories. The, the trustworthiness of Scripture, because that seemed to, to be where a lot of the questions were aimed. Uh, we're going to talk about the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're also going to talk about uh, the sovereignty of God, which we had a lot of questions aimed at. And so we felt like those were the three big uh, subtopics under God and Bible. And so we're going to talk about that today. Now, here's how this is going to unfold. It's going to seem really weird. Uh, we've got, obviously, four of the pastors up here on the stage. Uh, we've kind of broke these out, um, and, and Mike drew the short straw, so he's going to start us today. But we're going to uh, give ourselves time limits and try to make it through these big, big topics. Now, I'll tell you up front, this is not going to be exhaustive, obviously. There's no way we can get into it. You could do an entire series based on each one of these questions, but we're trying to do it in eight minutes is what we're trying to do. And then right after each eight-minute segment, uh, we're going to answer it. Following that, we're going to have some of your questions that fell under those headings. We're going to break those out, and we're going to do a rapid-fire question-and-answer thing. And so I'm just going to be firing questions. Uh, I'm going to answer a few of them, let these guys answer the majority of them. But we're going to hit it pretty hard and go pretty fast through this. And so uh, we should have changed the name of this uh, series to Drinking from a Fire Hose or something like that, right? Uh, but hopefully this will make more sense as we get going. Hopefully it'll answer some questions and uh, it'll set the stage for what we're going to hit over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, here we go. Um, Mike has a very, very difficult um, task in front of him. And I'm actually going to start the timer right here. Uh, so we are actually going to ask him to talk about the Bible in the next eight minutes and answer a lot of the questions that came in from you guys. So, uh, Mike, one, two, three. Nice. Um, we had a bunch of questions come in just kind of like, how do we know the Bible's trustworthy? 
Uh, didn't a bunch of guys get together and vote on it to figure out what's there? How do we know everything's supposed to be in there, is in there, we didn't miss anything? So I'm gonna try to cover that real quick. And obviously, again, it's not gonna be exhaustive. Uh, so just pay attention, hopefully you get something out of it here. So these are great questions for us to think about just because the Bible is uh, such a primary source for us to know about the nature of God, his character, who he is, and what he wants us to know about following him. And so it's kind of that bedrock sort of thing. So it's really important for us to kind of come to a place that we can trust it and believe it. Um, many places in the Bible itself, it talks about that it is God's word, that it's God-breathed, that the Holy Spirit gave uh, the, the illumination to be able to write it down. Um, but kind of using the Bible to prove itself is kind of like trying to define a word with itself in the same sentence, so that doesn't work. So we're going to try a little bit different bent here. Um, just a couple quick facts about the Bible. First of all, the Bible is the most circulated, most translated, most published, most purchased book in all of human history. And so that by itself kind of lends to the fact that it's something pretty important and different. Um, it's the only truly ancient work of literature that is actually read daily um, by 2.5 billion people in the world. Um, there are 106, there are, I'm sorry, there are 66 books in the Bible. They were written by 40 different human authors um, over the spread of about 1,500 years. And if you read through the Bible as a whole, you'll see it is actually incredibly consistent. Sometimes people get hung up on the inconsistencies or what they think or perceive are the inconsistencies. But it's got a very common and consistent message, direction, and theme. And so I don't know about you. I don't think we can get 40 people together at the same time and have them agree and kind of come up with something, let alone over the spread of 1,500 years. So those kind of facts are kind of pretty critical to me um, as far as thinking about why the Bible is trustworthy. While nothing in the Bible has, well, I'll put it this way, not everything in the Bible has yet to be proven, there is nothing in the Bible that has been disproven. There used to be uh, a group of people who would look at, for instance, archaeology, and they'd say, the Bible's not true because this group that the Old Testament talks about a lot, the Hittites, there were no archaeological evidence that the Hittites existed. And then they were able to find a site that happened to be the, the king's city of the Hittites, and it proved what the Old Testament said, particularly some of the things out of Joshua and Judges and those kind of books. Um, there was also in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, for instance, there was a group that said King David was just a made-up figure. There was no archaeological evidence outside of the Jewish country that would say that he existed at all. And then in 1994, there was in uh, Syria, there was found a series of tablets that talked about the house of David that proved first kings and second kings. And so over time, there may be things that we sometimes think didn't happen, and it just means we haven't found the evidence yet. Um, the Bible is broken up into two main pieces, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was written in the Jewish communities. Um, there were a lot of communities that were aimed at keeping very detailed copies of it um, and protecting that over time. I don't know if you guys have been to the Denver Museum and have seen the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's an example of one of those communities that we've been able to, to find their documents to prove that the Old Testament, those writings are consistent over thousands and thousands of years. So we can trust that what's in the Old Testament has been the same for a long time. The New Testament was written uh, between 50 and 90 AD. And um, in that time frame, you know, they were written on scrolls. Scrolls were incredibly expensive. And so they were only written and copied by very skilled scribes with small handwriting who had attention to detail. 
The scrolls were sent to different churches and stuff because the eyewitnesses of Jesus and his time on earth, um, they were all dying off. They're either being martyred or dying of old age or whatever. And so they said, hey, we need to write this stuff down. And that was kind of the impetus for the gospels, uh, gospels to be written down was because of that. And then you have the different letters that were sent to churches. Well, in those days, there wasn't a lot of other background for people to read. They didn't have the Bible like we have. So those pieces of, of documents were critical and became actually the, the primary source of preaching within all the churches. Um, instead of having somebody get up and preach, they would read these books. They would read those letters. And so churches said, this is incredibly important for us. So they started collecting all of these letters they could. They collected the Gospels. They put them together. And then they started making copies. So as they launched new churches, the new churches would get copies of them as well. Um, the scrolls were expensive, again, and so they were copied meticulously. We have lots of copies of these scrolls. We don't have any of the, the true originals, but we have lots of copies that we can look through the years and see that they did not change, at least not significantly. Now, some people believe that, um, again, the, the contents of the Bible, the canon, was voted upon. Um, but we have evidence about, um, say, 104, uh, sorry, 140, 160 A.D. of different canons already existing in a bunch of churches, that canon being that collection. The councils that most people say voted on the Bible, those didn't happen until the 3rd or 4th century. So that was a long time afterwards. And those councils, what they were actually doing is they were looking at what was already there, and people were wanting to insert things into the, con into the, the canon, um, particularly some of the Gnostic Gospels, things like the Gospel of Thomas or the Shepherd of Hermas. Um, these works were actually written in the 2nd and 3rd century. And so the, these different councils, they used four criteria to see if something should be added. They said, was the author an apostle or chosen or had a close connection with an apostle? Were they an eyewitness? They said, is the book being accepted by the Christ, the body of Christ at large? Were lots of churches using it or were there just a couple vocal churches who wanted it? Did the book contain consistency of doctrine and orthodox teaching? In other words, did it match the rest of Scripture or was it totally out in left field? And then also, did the book bear evidence of high moral and spiritual values that would reflect a work of the Holy Spirit? So the Holy Spirit illuminated what was written down or, or inspired what was written down in Scripture, and so they said, is it possible that this work is part of it? And if it wasn't, they said, we're not going to add it. So actually, those councils didn't add anything to what was already in use. Uh, I got a minute left here. Um, the Bible was originally written in three languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. So every Bible that we have in English is actually a translation, right? There wasn't an English Bible that was written originally. And so all the different versions of the English Bible we have are because of different philosophies that the translators took. On the one end, you have what we call formal equivalence, which is basically they're trying to get the words perfect to match. Those are a little more difficult to read, like the New King James or the NASB. And then on the other end, you kind of have what we call dynamic equivalence. These, this is thinking more of what were they trying to talk about in the, in the paragraph and the sentence? And that's where the New Living Translation, which is the kind of the translation we're using right now, it's a little bit easier to read, but it's still perfect in what it's trying to tell us. And then there's paraphrases. Paraphrases are like the message and the voice and, and some of those. And so those, those are a little bit more like devotional. You read them to kind of get a feel, but they may be missing something. The other thing that's really critical to know is sometimes new translations come out because we're continually finding new scrolls. Uh, archaeologists are uncovering things. And language changes, right? So the language of Shakespeare in English is different than the word on the street today. 
And so Greek today does not match biblical Greek. And so we need these other ancient documents to try to understand how some of these words, what their real meaning is. And so sometimes translations get updated because of that. My short conclusion, Holy Spirit inspired it. God put together who the authors were. They each wrote it down. It hasn't changed. God has been totally in charge of the preservation and the spread of the word, and so it's trustworthy. All right, so here we go. (laughs) Not bad for eight minutes, huh? Uh, Now we're going to hit hit some quick uh, rapid-fire questions. Uh, I'll take the first one here. It says, are those who commit murder or hurt others forgiven? Good, good question, and I would just simply say it this way. If they repent and seek God's forgiveness, then yes, they are. And, and sometimes we struggle with that uh, because we are just in our humanity. We want revenge or we want justice, and we want to see somebody hurt because they hurt somebody else. And uh, the reality of that is, uh, you know, the person that's sitting on death row, uh, they, can, they can seek God's forgiveness and, and be granted God's forgiveness. And, and even though sometimes we struggle with that, I have to tell you, we have to be, we have to be thrilled about that. Because that, what that means is that there's no sin beyond God's forgiveness, which means nothing that you could ever do uh, is beyond the cross of Christ. That he could, His grace is more than sufficient for each and every one of us. And so it's actually good news. Uh, number two, Ryan, um, how can we stand firm through intense persecution? The short answer is to put on the full armor of God, not to be flippant, but to truly, um, you'll find this in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, to, to get into that and put that into practice in our daily lives. Um, for me specifically, I find verse 18 to be um, particularly important, and it says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Uh, just imagine what a difference it would make if we would all be constantly praying and praying for each other. Okay. Hunter, I'm going to throw this one at you. Uh, it says, I have a family member who's an amazing man. He, he loves serving others. He loves his country, but he is not a believer of God. He questions a lot of the Bible, God, etc. Does that mean he automatically will, be, will not be able to spend eternity with God in heaven? This is a a very emotionally charged question for whoever asked it, Uh, and all of us can probably relate to somebody in our life who uh, we kind of feel this towards. Um, So I have to try to answer it, uh, I don't know, uh, tactfully, tactfully, yeah, yeah. I guess. Um, Basic, yeah, and quickly now. Uh, Way to go over time, Mike. Um, (laughs) The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, Um, and so just from a very matter-of-fact point of view, if we don't have Christ in our life, no matter how good or bad a person we are, we will not be able to spend eternity with God. Now, Christianity is a very inclusive religion in the fact that anybody at any point can give their life to Christ. They need to reflect that relationship. And so uh, you, whoever asked this question, asked me, you know, can they spend eternity with Christ? Um, I have to ask you, why is it you're not trying to convince them how much they need God? if you've got the passion, you see this person and they, they, man, you want them in heaven with you, go make it happen. Like, let's, let's make sure this person is in church. Let's make sure this person uh, knows who Christ is. Okay. Mike, uh, number four, why do we as Christians not honor God on the Sabbath nor even recognize the Sabbath? Sabbath being like from Friday after sundown until Sunday or Saturday sundown. Right, and so the, the thought of, of Sabbath being this, this particular time frame comes from uh, the law, Old Testament, 
And the great thing is that Jesus completed the Old Testament. So we are no longer under the law. We're under grace instead. And it is great to follow parts of the Old Testament, but again, we, we're not required to. Um, I think God had this specific time just so that the Jews would stop and do it. And so instead, we need to spend some time every week in Sabbath ourselves and resting and spending time with God in a special way. Um, the other piece of it is basically when the New, Te the New Testament church started um, and they were following Jesus and kind of moving away from the Jewish tradition, uh, they didn't have a place to meet. They didn't have a church building or anything. And so they, they wanted to use the temple as well. But, of course, the temple was in use during the Sabbath. So they did the next day. And that's kind of why we do Sunday morning. Uh, another real quick thing is there may also be a tie to something about how Jesus kind of rose on a Sunday. Just thinking. <laughs> All right. So here we go. We're going to hit uh, our second section. This is the section addressing the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we're breaking it up this way. Mike's going to take the first, and, and we're going to split these up in two minutes. So imagine trying to describe the Trinity in two minutes. Uh, that's Mike's job. Ryan's got God the Father. Hunter's going to talk about God the Son. And then I have the Holy Spirit, and we'll do it in two minutes each, starting now. So the Trinity. Uh, God is three in one. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, it's one of those mystery sort of things about God and his nature. Uh, sometimes we hit certain things that are just a moment of faith, and we have to follow it. Um, God's math doesn't always make sense to us, right? One plus one plus one equals one. How does that work? Um, Ryan gave me something cool. He said, well, sometimes it's about perspective, right? So it's actually not one plus one plus one. It's one times one times one equals one. But hey, that works a lot better. Um, the Trinity is, uh, is just how God interacts with us, um, different ways that God is able to approach us and have relationship with us through three different facets. Um, it's found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. A lot of people don't think it's in the Old Testament, but it is absolutely there. If you look through, you'll find it a lot of places. Um, some ways to recognize it is a lot of the English translations. You'll see the word uh, Yahweh or Jehovah or Lord, all capital letters, and that's God, the Father, the Creator. Then sometimes you'll see the Lord or the angel of the Lord in some cases. That's Jesus. And then you see the Spirit of the Lord or the Holy Ghost. That'll show up in the Old Testament as well. And that's, of course, the Holy Spirit. Um, one way to look at it is, you know, at the very beginning in, in the book of Genesis, it starts in the beginning, God. That's singular. And then in verse 26 in chapter 1, it also says, let us make man in our image. It's a plural. And so that's kind of, it's throughout the Old Testament. New Testament, it's there as well. It is scattered throughout. Uh, the easiest evidence, or the one that everybody looks at, is kind of the, the baptism of Jesus. You have Jesus there being baptized. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove upon him. And then you hear the voice of the Father saying, this is my son who I'm well pleased. But it is in a lot of other places. Those of you who like to take notes, a couple quick references to look up. Uh, Romans 14, 17 through 18. 1 Peter 1, 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 to 6, and Ephesians 4, 4 to 6 are also examples where you clearly see all three of them all together. Um, there's not a perfect analogy that explains the Trinity, um, so we don't want to give you anything that would lead you down the wrong path. It's one of those things that is a little complex, and it is a, a step of faith for us to just follow along and say that is who God is that God reaches us in three distinct things, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
I get God the Father, and um, simply put, God the Father, I'm just going to list some of the things, and because they are the Trinity, uh, there's going to be some interweaving with God and Jesus in mind as well. Um, God the Father created the universe and everything in it. He is a big God, but at the same time, He is a personal God who knows each person's every need. God is absolute holiness. No darkness exists within Him. Habakkuk 1.13a says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. However, God set a plan in place to save us from ourselves. He graciously sent Jesus to die in our place so that when we choose him, we can have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. God the Father's plan for salvation is lovingly based on his grace, not on what we do. Only Jesus' righteousness is acceptable to God the Father. Repenting of sin and accepting Christ as Savior makes us justified or righteous in God's eyes. Some of the strengths of God the Father. God the Father is, again, these are, um, these are three words that you might have heard. They're, they're, they're just words that people use who've been in church for a while. But um, I'll try to break them down a little bit. You have God the Father is omnipotent, which means he's infinite and limitless. He is also omniscient, which means his knowledge is total and nothing surprises him. Also, God the Father is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. God is just yet merciful. He gave humans the gift of free will by not forcing anyone to follow him. Anyone who rejects God's offer of forgiveness of sins is responsible for the consequences of their own decision. God cares. He intervenes in the lives of people, in the lives of us. He answers prayer and reveals himself through his word, circumstances, and people. And God is sovereign. He is in complete control. No matter what is happening in the world, he, the ultimate plan always his ultimate plan always overrules mankind. In the Old Testament, uh, God introduces uh, a method of oneness with himself. Uh, whenever somebody sins, they are separated from God. Uh, and that method that brings his people back to him throughout the Old Testament is sacrifice. Uh, Jesus was the, or excuse me, the son was the method by which Jesus, by God the Father, reconciled all humanity to himself. Uh, and really, I have the easy one because uh, Jesus is a provable character. He's somebody that we can look at in historical texts and we can see. Um, it is somebody who uh, exemplified what God wants for us throughout his life uh, and someone who really kind of did an example of what God has in store for us. Uh, Jesus himself is really the sacrifice for each and every one of us. Uh, and if you look at his death, it is very, uh, how do I say this? It's very interesting, the correlations you find in the Old Testament sacrifice system and what Jesus went through on the cross. And I have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this is this is just crazy trying to explain the Trinity this quickly. Uh, I had a a quote, John Wesley said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I'll show you a man who can comprehend the triune God. And so here we are trying to explain it in just a couple of minutes. But the Holy Spirit to me is uh, just, uh, I love this aspect of the Trinity, because this is the way God dwells with his people. Uh, the, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, uh, you know, the, this whole triune thing is not something that was thought out as God was going through history, it was, it was from the very beginning, and we see that. Mike alluded to that earlier. Uh, we get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says that God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And then it says, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so even before time, we have 
the triune God and, and God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, what's interesting to me is that the Holy Spirit really starts to come into play when, uh, when sin enters the world and breaks apart humanity from God. And, and as Hunter talked about, the Son coming and, and dying on the cross and, and making the sacrifice so that we could be made right in our relationship with God. In that moment, it says that when we receive Christ, we are filled with the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit or, or the Holy Ghost, you'll read in some translations. And when we start, start talking about Spirit and Ghost, we, that, that's a little freaky to us, uh, freaky deaky Dutch, right? We, I'm not sure what to do with that. And, and I, I want to tell you, this, this, is, this is one of the greatest aspects of God, is that He dwells with His people through His Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, uh, it says that if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to the Father. And so when we belong to Jesus Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent to us. Jesus told his disciples that when I leave, I'm going to send you a helper, a counselor. And he says it's actually better if I leave because then the counselor can come. The Holy Spirit can come. And the reason for that is because we can have a relationship with the Holy Spirit that we couldn't have with a physical Jesus. It's even more intimate. And, and the, the things that the Holy Spirit is sent to do in Scripture is to speak to us or speak through us, Acts 8. Uh, he teaches us, 2 Timothy 1. He guides us, John 16. Uh, he witnesses both to us and through us, Hebrews chapter 10. He comforts us, uh, John 14. He helps us, John 16. Supports us, and there's like 3, 4, John 14, 16. Anyway, there's... A lot of examples of the Holy Spirit working in and through His people, supporting them, helping them. Uh, but it also says that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Uh, now, the reason the Holy Spirit exists is to glorify the Father and the Son. And I think that's why it's such a good match for those who call themselves disciples of Christ. Because that's, as you heard earlier, Hunter answering the question, our job is to, to glorify God. And with the Holy Spirit, we're able to do that. And so with that being said, let's... A uh, uh, couple of quick things just to add. Um, one of the big attributes of God is love, right? And love is an action, it's a choice, and it has to be done for somebody. And so God, even before he, he started creation, you know, we're created to love God, but he doesn't need our love. He was complete before that. Mm -hmm. And he was complete because the Trinity is basically three that are in love with each other. There's a, an action, there's a choice, there's someone to love, and so that's complete. And the great thing is we get invited to be part of the Trinity's love for each other. And one other quick thing, I'm going to add this real fast. Um, sometimes people also ask, is it okay to pray to each member of the Trinity? You know, absolutely. And sometimes if you'll, you'll hear me, I usually pray through the Trinity. I'll usually start with the Father and say something, and then Jesus and the Spirit. And the reason I do that is because, again, he interacts with us in different ways through each of his three different facets. And so that's a great way to pray is to think about those interactions and to be able to just pour out your heart that way. And I think we talked in the office, too, uh, about illustrations. How do you illustrate that? You know, and, and you guys, if you've been around the church any amount of time, you know the egg, the water illustration. You see all these different illustrations that we've tried to use to, there's just nothing suffice. Because uh, even like the water, you know, you have the, you have the steam and you have the liquid and you have the ice, and, but it can't be all of those at one time. And so it just falls short and there's no way to describe it. But uh, one, one way that, you know, uh, one of the examples was a king's court. You know, you have the king, you have the prince and you have the ambassador. 
and the ambassador, whatever the ambassador says, you know came directly from the father through the prince to the ambassador. And so uh, that, that to me seemed like a better idea of what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He brings the message to us. He, any edict that comes from the ambassador, you know is, it's an edict from the king. And so um, anyway, okay, so let's hit the questions real quick. Uh, first question, um, why does God allow me and others to suffer from depression? Am I not doing enough? Am I not giving enough? And am I, am I not trusting enough? Um, I, the second part of that, I would say this. No, that's, that's not the case. Um, we, we even strong believers who are strong in their faith, some of, of us suffer from depression. Some of us suffer from other diseases, mental illnesses. Um, you know, that, that's, not a, that's not a faith issue. That's not because you did something wrong. That's, we, we try to teach everyone. You've heard this in other series Anytime you run into something in your life, a tragic situation, a death, an illness, whatever it is, you have to ask the question, where is this coming from? And you have different options. It's either coming from God, and it's interesting to me that we'll, we'll blame God for everything that goes wrong in our lives, but, but when things go right, we never give him the credit, okay? So it's not all God. Uh, we do have an active enemy that works against us, Satan, right? You have to acknowledge that. If you acknowledge good, you have to acknowledge the evil side of things. Uh, so we have active God, we have Satan, we have um, consequences for our own decisions, but we also have a broken and messed up world. And some things that happen to us, it's because we're in a fallen, broken world and busted bodies, and it stinks. And, and just to say this, that was never God's original plan, but it's what we're dealing with today. So, second question, Hunter, um, how can you prove God is alive? Go. <laughs> the easy one. Um, I found that whenever somebody comes up and asks this question, uh, they're not really asking the question. Uh, they, they've already made up their mind, or they're wanting me to produce a physical manifestation of God right in front of them that to just blow their mind. Um, and honestly, the short answer to this question is I can't. Um, you, there will always be an element of faith, and that's built in. God wants us to believe in him and have faith in him. If we knew it without the shadow of a doubt, then we know it, uh, and we don't have to believe. We don't have to trust, uh, and that's not what God wants. But if you want to talk about proofs for uh, God's existence, that I would love to do. This is actually a big passion of mine. Um, scientifically, we can look at the science of histography and prove that Jesus raised from the dead. In fact, proving that Jesus raised from the dead is easier than proving uh, George Washington was our first president. Um, philosophically, I love talking about morality and, and how we know that God exists because of the ramifications of just morality. Um, emotionally, we can look at, at God's existence. And, and honestly, the best route to go if somebody ever asks you this question or the best answer that I can give you is my own life. Um, I have seen God work in my own life and I've seen him do incredible things in me, through me, with me. Uh, and there's really no way that any of you can debate that part of it. Um, I know my limitations, and I've exceeded those limitations because of what God has done for me. So if you want to know proof of God, I'd love to talk to you more on any of those particular subjects. Um, that answer it? That, that kind of do it? There we go. I'm done. All right, Ryan. How can you tell when God is trying to tell you something or send a message? Seriously, though, <laughs> <laughs> on a Maybe serious note, no. <laughs> um, are you in the Word? Are you praying regularly? 
Are you seeking advice from other believers? See, God speaks to us through the Holy Spirit, and he uses the Bible, prayer, circumstances, and the church or other believers to do that. When these things combined are confirmed with the commandments in Scripture, then it's safe to say that God is telling you something. Awesome. By the way, you should have seen our assistant when we were like, okay, we need four foil hats. Anyway, all right. Uh, Mike, where did God come from? Uh, God is the only thing that didn't come from someplace, right? Everything else is created. He was in the beginning. And again, we, we keep going to Genesis 1, but uh, in the beginning, God says in the beginning, but God already had to be there to take that first action. And so that's the one thing. God's eternal. He's always there. Will God grant all my dreams? No. <laughs> Uh, God's not our cosmic vending machine. Um, he's not a genie in a bottle, and we say the right words and rub it, and, and we grant everything. Um, so he's not going to grant all your dreams. But over time, as you get to know God, as you grow, as you learn to more about him, you will start to align your own life to his will and his purposes. And as you do that, then you'll find that your prayers are answered more, and your dreams are answered and granted to you because you're going in the same direction as God is. Great. Hunter, the question I've struggled with is why God made us? What purpose do we serve? Perfect. Um, can I, before I answer that, can I add on to what Mike said just about how, where did God come from? You better hurry. You better hurry. Um, <clears throat> if we look at time as a, uh, as one of the dimensions that we're stuck in, like we're, we're looking at our our lives, and we're stuck in what's called forward linear motion time, meaning we can't go backwards, we can't move around, but God exists beyond that. So if we look at time as like an actual timeline, then there is nothing stopping God from either advancing, going back, turning time around, looking at it from any different way. That also means before our timeline began, God existed, which is the exact reason why we can't answer the question. So that's just my uh, weird note, my... No, yeah. Um, but as far as uh, what purpose do we serve, what, why did God make me, um, there's really kind of a corporate answer, and then there's a, a specific answer. Um, so corporately, God made us, and we see it pretty early on in Scripture, to bring glory and honor to his name. Uh, the reason he created Adam was to work for him, to, to have him worship God. Like, that is our purpose. We are, we are here as human beings to bring glory and honor to God. That's, that's what it is. That's who we are. Um, specifically, you have an individual purpose as to why you're here on this earth. Um, I don't know what that is. That's between you and God. Some of us have found that out. Um, and I remember the moment that I recognized or I realized what God had in store for me because it changed everything. Um, I, it meant I was going to be a youth pastor. Um, so some of your kids are having to deal with me because of God's revelation years and years ago. Sorry. Um, but you have a specific calling on your life as well. And whatever that calling is, that's for you and God to work out. Um, I can pray for you in finding it, but I can't tell you what your specific purpose is. Okay. Next subject is a very, very difficult subject because we are going to have to cover it in eight minutes, starting right now. And it's on the sovereignty of God. And uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and start. We, we uh, see where... Uh, People come up all the time and ask the question about God's sovereignty. And so often when we're talking about God's sovereignty, the, the question that comes out of that, at least for me, 
uh, many, many times is this idea of if God is so sovereign, then how in the world do I have free will? Like, like how do those two things work together? If God is over everything, if he's predestined, he's chosen, then, then do I even have a choice in anything? And so really it's this wrestle when we talk about God's sovereignty, wrestling this tension that we see in scripture between God being sovereign and us still having free will and making our own choices. And let's be honest, uh, there's no way that we're going to be able to explain this in a way that we all walk out of here and go, ah, that, that was perfect, right? Uh, because we see both of those in Scripture. You see the sovereignty of God, and you see free will that he's given us in Scripture. And so uh, our human understanding, I think, can only take us so far, and then after that, faith has to kick in. Uh, we've just got to trust in that, uh, because the only way to proceed in this is with faith. Because honestly, and if, if we're being honest, just bold with you, we would say that this is one of those subjects we're just never going to fully understand. We could spend the rest of our lives studying it, flipping it, cutting it open, and never come to a full understanding of how God's sovereignty and our free will work together. It just, it's just no way it's going to happen. And we, I have conversations with other pastors about this, and we discuss it all the time because we're wrestling with it. Uh, so it's, it's one of those tough, tough subjects, but the reality is we see both in Scripture. Is God sovereign? Yes. Do we have free will? Yes. And it's that tension that we see all the time, and we can't seem to, to get both of those put together. We have an either-or approach many times when it comes to situations like this, and the answer is it's both. We, we definitely struggle with it because we, we see how much pain is in the world or how much pain we perceive in the world, uh, and we really... We, we kind of blame God for it. We say, if God, if you were really sovereign, well, children wouldn't be starving all over the world. And I think that's actually one of our questions coming up, so I won't jump too far into that. But when I look at the sovereignty of God, and, and specifically when it comes to his control versus our free will, um, I see it, and I, I'm the kind of guy that I have to have kind of uh, some kind of explanation or visual for it. Um, I view it as kind of like us being in a maze. Um, we only have so many options we can take at any given point in our life. Uh, we have to make decisions. We can choose to go left or right. We can choose uh, after that to go left or right again, or, and whatever it is. But one thing that we always forget is that God, like I was explaining earlier, he existed long before us. Uh, he created us knowing everything that was going to happen. He created Adam and Eve knowing that you were going to be sitting in church right here, right now. He knew that you were going to mess up X amount of times before you made it to Mountain View Fellowship on this day, and you knew he knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what you're going to do 10 years from now, and he knows how many mess-ups you're going to have until then. And that's one thing I constantly remind the teens of, is that God knew every sin that you were ever going to commit your entire life. Not just the ones up to when you accept Christ, and then after that he's like, oh, I didn't expect you to do that. God knows every sin that's ever going to happen in your entire life. And that's what Jesus died for. Jesus died for every sin that was ever going to occur in your life. Now, that being said, if that's the case, if we credit God with giving us forgiveness for sins we have yet to create, yet to do, how is it we can take away from God the ability to read our actions? We have free will in that we can choose any direction we want. But regardless of what we choose, God knows it. Um, the best example I find is in Scripture is uh, when Moses is coming on behalf of God and telling Pharaoh to let his people go. We see multiple times where it says in Scripture, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. 
And we see other times where it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, and so here's, here's what I would suggest in, uh, that we see in that scripture. Uh, God knew that Pharaoh was going to harden his heart. God knew that Pharaoh was going to choose not to let the people go. And so instead of allowing Pharaoh to just get away without consequences on that, God used Pharaoh to make an example. We see that eventually after the ten plagues, you know, uh, the people are let go. We see Pharaoh's army kind of destroyed. Uh, and they take 40 years to cross the desert. After the 40 years happens, they get to the promised land. And the people in the promised land are still absolutely terrified because of what happened 40 plus years ago to Egypt. And so I say all of that to tell you this. God's got a purpose for your life. And if you choose to follow God, his sovereignty will take you where you need to go. But if you choose to act against God or you choose not to follow what God wants, he's going to use you to accomplish his will anyway. That's part of the mystery that is the sovereignty. Regardless of our choices, God is going to continue to use you to accomplish his will, to bring glory and honor to him, whether you like it or not. Um, and I don't like losing, so I'm going to be on, on God's team and try not to get uh, made an example of. Just saying. And I, he uses it. Regard, he wants us to choose right. He wants us to choose correctly. But even if we don't, he still has a way of bringing about his will. And that's the great thing about it. Uh, I, I find uh, in Matthew chapter 11 an example of this, this tension between the sovereignty and free will. It says, no one knows, and, and Jesus is speaking here, he says, no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So that sounds more like sovereignty to me, like no one's going to know the Father unless, unless Jesus chooses them. And then it goes on to say, the very next verse, come to me, which sounds like human responsibility, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. So it's this idea of, yes, there's sovereignty, but there's also human responsibility. We still have free will to choose it or to reject it. And, and again, it's that tension that we struggle with. So I would say this, is God completely in charge of everything? Yes, absolutely. Uh, it says in Isaiah 46, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, causing my, uh, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Is man answerable for his choices and actions? Yes, absolutely. Galatians 6 says, for whatever man sows, that he will reap. And so I, I would say as hard as this answer is, it's both. One thing that I had a short conversation between services, and one thing I got reminded of is when we hear this word sovereignty, especially in, like, modern-day America, we kind of, like, equate it to a dictator, something that we, like, must be mean, must be ugly because they're, they're forcing their will upon us. Um, and we have to keep in mind that, that God is so much greater than us. He doesn't just exhibit one emotion. His sovereignty is love for everyone who exists regardless of what state they're in, regardless of what they've gone through in their past. Um, and I think I say this in, in just a few minutes, but there is no such thing as a wasted experience for God. I'm not going to be the guy who says um, everything happens for a reason because sometimes that reason is just sin. Sometimes that reason is we just live in a broken world, but God doesn't waste anything. And so I, I would again repeat that his sovereignty is love for us. So first question, Hunter. 
Uh, God created people with free will. Through free will, Adam and Eve sinned and became imperfect. Does that mean that God's imperfect? No. Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, They're just uh, happy you stopped talking. Right, yeah. <laughs> youth pastor thinks he knows stuff. Just like, wait a minute. Um, no, honestly, God, like we just discussed, God has sovereignty, and that's free will. And so even though he knew Adam and Eve were going to choose to sin, and they were going to choose to hide the sin, just as Cain hid the sin of, of murdering his brother, um, he has a plan for the greater world. His plan is, is to bring as many people close to him as possible. And so part of that sovereignty was allowing this evil to enter the world, unfortunately, for us. Okay. On that subject, Ryan, uh, why does God not change some people? I've been praying for someone dear to my heart, but God doesn't seem to change his life. The short answer, again, is free will. Um, it's obviously within this thread here. But um, if a person is not a Christian, then they're not going to have the Holy Spirit to help them make those decisions to change. So, I mean, that aside, if they're not a Christian, again, they need to be at that point before the change will occur. Um, but beyond that, Revelations 3.20 tells us, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. So that involves action on our part. We have to open the door. Okay, but in the meantime, don't, and I want to overemphasize, don't stop praying for that person that you want to see changed. Um, pray that the Holy Spirit will open their ears and their hearts, that, uh, that they will open the door that Jesus is knocking on. A personal story for me is my mom prayed for my father for 30 plus years that he would open the door. And every day was a constant reminder that he had made that decision and she could rightfully say, God, you haven't, you haven't shown yourself, you haven't proven yourself to this prayer that I'm, I'm earnestly praying. I don't, I'm done with it. But she continued to pray for 30 plus years. And shortly before my dad passed, the Holy Spirit got a hold of him. And my dad opened that door. So don't stop praying. But we do, their free will is part of that. Okay. Mike, why does God allow innocent children to go through pain such as abuse from their parents leading to a horrible childhood? My heart breaks for so many different stories of, of pain in this world. Um, you know, and I've worked with, with families through the years who are going through abuse issues where things, you know, their lives are a train wreck. And it's, it's tough. And I'd love to be able to just offer an answer that's, that's kind of easy and everything, but there's no easy answers. And it, it, it rolls all back into this free will, the fact that we live in a broken world. Um, the, being a Christian doesn't, God never promised that our lives are going to be easy. And actually, God is more concerned with our holiness than he is with our happiness. Uh, he's more concerned with us being transformed, uh, transformed in our character and our belief and our faith more than our outward actions and behaviors. And so, you know, I don't have an easy answer for this other than God's going to work through this. And we just have to, in faith, say he's... He's somehow going to use these horrible situations in the world for his glory, for others to find out more about him. And again, it, it, I, don't, I, can't, I can't totally answer why, why kids go through a hard time, why people go through a hard time, why, why those things happen, other than just to say we do have to just rest in the fact that God is in charge. He's God and we're not. 
Okay, Ryan, why would God grant a prayer knowing I would be unhappy? Well, when I was eight, um, I went to church and we had Sunday school at this time. And one of the Sunday school stories was about Samson and Delilah. And just a quick um, Reader's Digest version, uh, Samson was was a man of God who God blessed him with great might and and hair. And that hair was part of his strength. And so this, in, in my youth, was an amazing story. And I prayed, God, would you please make me like Samson? And clearly, it's not the case, mostly. I got the hair. I just didn't get the strength. I mean, God blessed me with hair. I'm not happy about it, right? So speaking to Mike's, God is more concerned about our holiness than our happiness. And with that is, um, I have Psalms 37.4 where, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. The more mature we are in our relationship with Christ, then the more our desires and our wants align with that which is Christ. And, it, and it's only true, you can see it, the more you hang with a group of people, the more you become alike each other. And so if, if we're making a concerted effort to spend time with our creator, then we're going to be more and more like him to where our prayers then reflect what breaks his heart. And we wouldn't be asking ourselves, why did God answer the prayer this way? We would say, I understand. Okay, the last question. If Jesus uh, healed everyone while he was alive in the flesh on earth, here on earth, why doesn't he heal everyone now? And I took this one because I have personal experience with this one. And and there, there's some things in this question that we, I, I want to address real quickly because it says if Jesus healed everyone, and, and the reality is he didn't. I mean, he didn't heal everyone in Scripture. Uh, we know that because even when he goes to the cross, um, goes to the tomb, is risen, and then goes on, ascends into heaven, uh, later on his disciples are going into the temple, and there's somebody there that's ill, uh, somebody who's blind, that, you know, somebody who's lame, that uh, he didn't heal. There's, and it says that they've been right there by the temple in that same place for years and it never re received healing. Well, that's the same place Jesus used to walk. So apparently Jesus never stopped and healed him. So he didn't heal everyone. Uh, we know that to be true in our life as well today. God doesn't heal everyone. Uh, outside of a supernatural touch from Jesus, uh, we, we are not healed. And some have he still does that. He's in the business of miracles, and he does that when he chooses, but he doesn't always choose to do that. And, and some of it is our struggle with that. Well, why does he do it with some, and why, does, why doesn't he do it with others? Why doesn't he do it for me, right? And so whether it's depression or addictions or uh, a loss of someone we love, uh, death or whatever it is, we struggle with that because why did it happen to me? And, and I just want to tell you this first um, we, we struggle with chronic illness. Uh, my wife has a chronic illness that we've fought for 30-some years, and we will continue to fight it because God has chosen not to take it from us. And I like the line, he's more interested in our holiness than our happiness. And I think what happened is we've learned that over the years that God chose not to take that from us, uh, but instead, and this is what he does so often, he flips the script. And he'll flip the script so fast on these things. Something that we thought was a curse, something we thought was horrible, he is used to bring about beauty and some amazing things in our lives. 
It's shaped us into who we are today. There's no way I would be a pastor today if my wife didn't have chronic illness because it's through that that he's broken me. Um, I was too arrogant to be a pastor years ago Um, on top of many, many other issues, right? Um, Seeking him because my wife was sick and we were going through all of this stuff. It it made us draw closer. And and we were talking about this as pastors this last week and now so often our, our moments of growing spiritually come through difficult times. It's always in those tough times that we grow spiritually. It's not in the good times. We're not even looking for God then. It's only when we're forced to our knees do we start really seeking God and His will in our lives. And so sometimes He he uses that to get our attention to shape us, to mold us into people that look more and more like Him. The other thing is we've seen how God has used it many times in helping other people. And if you're just in it, if you're entering into that season, that's hard for you to see. When you're in the valley of the shadow of death, you can't see out. Uh, man, that's hard. But just know that God, whether he heals you or not, he walks with you every step of the way. He never leaves you. So, Exactly. Last year, uh, there was a period of time I was in the hospital about twice a week, uh, once for infusions, getting uh, different x-rays and, and scans and different things. But the same people were always there. The same nurses were always there. And the same people were, were giving me the infusions. And so over that course of of time, I was able to get to know them, uh, and if it hadn't been for the sickness, I never would have been able to uh, talk to any of these people. Uh, they would never have found out I was a pastor. They would never got to hear my story, and, and you know, I don't know what those people are doing now, but I'd like to think that you know, God used those circumstances in my life and those conversations to really kind of push them towards Him, because outside of that, they hadn't really thought about it. And if I can add a little bit to it, um, one of the ways that I look at it is. Um, Jesus is healing when we when we read scripture and in and, and every circumstance that was a way for him to display God's omnipotence his his power his that God is all powerful and then then we have to look through healing through the lens of the cross why did Jesus die on the cross that we might have right relationship with him again which ends in our eternity spending it with with our creator that that's the ultimate healing. That then once Jesus died on the cross, that we all have now the ability to be ultimately healed for eternity, spending that with our creator. So again, looking at it through that lens, it as Don said, being in the moment now, in, in the pain, the suffering, it's hard to get beyond that, but understanding that, that God has a new body for us, that God desires for us to spend that eternity with him, And that's the ultimate healing. Thanks for joining us here at Mountain View Fellowship. We'd love the chance to meet you in person. We gather each Sunday at 9 and 1045 a.m. at 1955 Headlight Road in Strasburg, Colorado. If you aren't able to join us in person, we'll meet you right back here next week. God bless.